Hello and welcome to episode 33 of For Art's Sake, an art history and museum podcast. I'm your host, Rhea. So one thing I need to get out of the way really quick is that I am recording on my fiance's microphone at his computer. He has a fancy microphone with like um one of those filter things in front of it. So that's why the audio is going to definitely sound very different. And if it's really good, uh, I might try and figure out how to record on his computer for the rest of the, until I can get a better setup on my own. Um, he's offered to do this before. I just never did it. And he's going to be mowing the lawn soon. So this is my time to record. Also, uh, the AC is on. It's very hot in Maryland. It's like very humid. Um, and I just got off work and I was like going outside and it was just not fun. But I'm feeling good right now. Um, what else? What else is there to talk about? Oh, um, museums, especially in the DMV, are continuing to reopen. I'm actually planning a museum trip um, at the end of August when the or September when the Postal Museum finally reopens. I, I've been saying that's a museum I would like to go to first because it is big. You are already going to be socially distancing, you know, before the pandemic, you know. Um, it's a big, beautiful building. A lot of people don't know about it or kind of judge the postal aspect of it, but it's really interesting, really beautiful. Um, and I can't wait to visit. And you don't need time passes probably because a lot of people don't go there. It's not like the Natural History Museum by far. Um, I've also said maybe I want to visit the American Indian Museum. Well, my fiance and I have talked about it. We would like to see if his flag is up. They've had a few years. I think they got federally recognized in 2018. So we shall see. Um, but he, he's kind of wants to go, um, and look at stuff because he, he's native and he would like to, and you know, he gets to do that. So if we decide he, that's his choice and we're going to do that. Um, unfortunately it's not as popular as other museums on the mall. So there is more social distancing, but they, I think they have a lot more people than the postal museum. Um, but some of the really large museums, for example, the National Air and Space Museum, which is the most visited, one of the most visited museums in the world, and I think the most visited in America, that might have changed since I last saw that. Of course, with 2020, they didn't really release stuff like that, did they? But they're reopening at the end of July. So um, as you start to visit museums and stuff, um, just keep in mind that these are real people who are working. So be patient be kind, be understanding, and follow the rules that the museum has. Um, you should still be wearing your mask even if you're fully vaccinated because you can still get COVID, even if it's rare. And you can still spread COVID. And there are people, and I'm not talking about anti-vaxxers, there are people who can't get vaccinated or are very unwilling to get vaccinated because, um, like, immunocompromised people, as they release more studies, like, the vaccines simply aren't working for them. So either they got vaccinated and it didn't work or like people who have transplants, they're not holding those antibodies or they're people who have more legitimate concerns because of them being immunocompromised that they just don't think it's going to work for them. Um, I've, a lot of people are talking about that and like a lot of disabled folks are just concerned that it's going to be a waste of time. Um, and then there's also people who have a systematic distrust of the government and medical stuff so we just need to keep those things in mind and again these are not the same as like normal anti-vaxxers um and we should just keep in mind that there are people who can't get the vaccine it's also children they're only just starting to do uh the 12 and up but anyway it's complicated we're still learning about stuff 
We know that the vaccines are very effective, but, you know, there are people who have certain things with their bodies that may not be um, effective for them, unfortunately. So there has to be more work done. Um, I just suggest wearing your mask. And if it says you should wear your mask, wear your mask. Don't even argue, even if you're fully vaccinated, um, like if a museum says that. And just keep your distance from staff. You know, they have to deal with a lot of people and it can be really, really scary. As I said um, like many, many times, security officers and also visitor services are like, especially security, are systematically like black men in history, uh, historically and systematically. And then, you know, we have other black people, who non-binary folks, women. Um, you have like older folks who are working the jobs. Um you have younger people, you know, there's so many different types of people who are that face marginalizations in our society. And so it can be pretty scary for them. Um, I know that a lot of friends are nervous about the lifting of mask mandates and stuff and are like asking their job to like keep holding on, you know, so just have patience um, with workers this summer, um, especially if things change, if numbers pick back up, you know, stuff like that. And they have to, like, go back on some rules and just just be kind. They're people who are giving you a service and putting themselves at risk, you know. All right. I think that <laughs> that's good. But, yeah, we are planning to eventually visit a museum. I just, I don't know if he wants to visit the American Indian Museum this summer or not. Um, or if we're going to wait until, like, September to go to the Postal Museum. We we shall see. We are doing outside activities. Um, like I do want to take a trip to DC because I haven't been to DC in a long time. And I do want to try and see my family because I haven't seen my family since 2019. Or was it even 2000? No, well, it definitely was 2019. It was my uncle's funeral. So, um, but we're doing like, I want to go to the zoo and do like activities like that, wearing my mask and socially distancing still. So yeah, let's just end it there. I've spoke for almost seven minutes on that. Um, so now I just want to give a content warning for the episode. Um, I'm going to be talking about the conflict between Palestine and Israel. And that conflict includes ethnic cleansing, genocide, colonization, occupation, violence. Um, the artist that I'm talking about um, makes art about violence and cultural genocide and stuff like that. Um, we'll be getting into that. I'm not going to try and be really, really graphic, but these are themes that are going are gonna to be presented because they are in her work. So I just want to give that content warning now. And I also want to say again, like I said last episode, this podcast, if you didn't already know already, is going to be anti-colonization, anti-genocide, which is like the bare minimum um, and very much pro-Palestine. So there you go. This is your content warning and your warning warning. Um, let's get into it, shall we? So first things first, I'm going to pull up the TikTok here. Oh, it's not paused still. <laughs> um, I got the idea to do this podcast episode because a TikTok came across my For You page by the um, account Ash Fiasco, A-S-H-F-I-A-S-C-O. Um, they have, I've seen them before on my For You page. Um, they post um, different types of stuff, including art history. Um, so they made a really nice video about this artist. And this artist that I'm going to be talking about today is Emily Jassir. Um, 
So some of the information in regards to her biography, um, like her birth year and birth date specifically, it's a little weird and iffy. I can't find exact information. Um, so mostly I am going to be focusing on the actual art, but of course I do need to give information on her biography. Now, according to her Wikipedia page, <laughs> this is funny, um, in the kind of like box with her name and like education and stuff like that, it says that she was born in 1972, but then in her biography section, it says she was born in 1973. And then when I looked on MoMA, it says she was born in 1970. So either way, she's like, in her late 40s, early 50s, um, she was born in Bethlehem, and she spent um, time in Saudi Arabia, America, Italy. She kind of moved around a lot. Um, she earned her art degree at the University of Dallas Memphis College of Art. And currently, it's interesting, so she is a Palestinian artist, also a filmmaker, um, but MoMA, for some reason, just says American, not Palestinian-American. It's just a little weird, that kind of, like, confusing information. But she does spend time um, in America and also uh, Ramallah, I think it, I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is a Palestinian city um, located in West Bank, north of Jerusalem. So, like I said, she is an artist and also a filmmaker. Photography and filmmaking is very much present within her work. She also does, um, I think she's primarily known for her installation work and combining those different elements. She also has done performance, writing, and also sound art, which is really neat. So, as I stated in my content warning, the themes that are present within her artwork include... Um, stuff like exile, displacement, occupation, violence that victims surviving or not surviving have gone through. Um, and there's also the theme of resistance. And this is, of course, as a Palestinian person um, who travels back and forth between America and Palestine, um, she deals primarily with that, the lens of being a Palestinian person, um, of Palestinian persons, not just herself, and the occupation of their land and lives. Um, these themes are within that context. Her history as an artist really kind of starts in 1994, where she had um, started to have solo exhibitions in a variety of different places, including London, Beirut, Los Angeles, New York. And in 1999, um, this is when she um, really helped build the art scene in Ramallah. Um, this is in 1999. She did have solo exhibitions um, before then, but this is when there was that real work to create uh, a art scene in that area. She's worked with a variety of different um, art organizations, including the Al Mamal Foundation for Contemporary Art. She currently works as a full-time professor. Um, she works at the um, International Academy of Art Palestine, um, and she's worked there since 2006, and from 2006 to 2012, she was on the academic board. Um, she led the first year of the Askal Awan Home Workspace Program in Beirut, which was held 2011-2012, and helped create the curriculum there. Um, some of her more recent, um, what are called juries, which is like 
uh, a very, very important exhibit that where you get judged, basically. Um, she had the most recent one was in 2014, which was the Visions Do Real Real Festival International Do Cinema Neon in Switzerland or Cinema in Neon Switzerland. <laughs> that was hard for me to read. Sorry. Um, she's won numerous awards for her work um, at like the 52nd, 52nd Venice Biennale. She won for, um, for Golden Lion, the Golden Lion for Artists Under 40. This was in 2007. Um, also in 2007, she was a recipient of the Prince Claus Award from The Hog. The Hague? Oh, The Hague. I'm pretty sure it's The Hague. I can't remember. It's The Hague. Don't laugh at me. Um, she was also a winner of the 2008 Hugo Boss Prize by the Guggenheim Foundation. In 2011, she was the Visual Arts winner of the Alpert Awards in the Arts. And in 2018, the most recent time, she won the Curator of the Young, Creator of the Young Artist of the Year Award. So, now that we know a lot more about her and her kind of history as an artist, which is important, but I know that we want to get to the, like, talking about the art. Um, let's let's do that. Let's talk about the art. And again, remember that we are talking about some very important and tragic themes that can be very upsetting for folks who have gone through that um, or have, relate to it in some way. All right. So the first artwork that we're going to be talking about is Memorial to 418 Palestinian, pa Palestinian villages, which were destroyed, depopulated, and occupied by Israel in 1948. Um, this is a work in progress. Um, and it was created in 2001. She came up with the idea during her residency at school um, and then created it after. Um, so I can't find any more information about the work in progress. I'm assuming that um, more villages can unfortunately be added. But it consists of a refugee tent, a tent that would be used in a refugee camp, and embroidery thread. There's also a record book. And um, I think a video, it's mixed media, but let me talk about it a little bit. So basically, when you see this, it is a tent. Um, when it's exhibited, it has on the outside um, the name of villages sewn into the roof and the wall on the side. And then the front of the tent is like kind of tied together and you can kind of peek in, but not really. And next to it is a record book. So this is actually um, the information, the village's names actually come straight from a book um, by Walid Khalidi um, called All That Remains, the Palestinian Villages Occupied and Depopulated by Israel in 1948. All of these villages that were mentioned, at least originally, were all wiped out in the year 1948, which was the foundation year of the state of Israel. Um, and of course, at the same time, this is when Palestinian territories were absolutely taken over, devastated. Um, this is when people became refugees because of forced displacement. Um, and forced displacement, of course, is different from, you know, a displacement because of a natural disaster. This is like a military force, walled force, um, discrimination force, economic force. Um, these the local population, which was called the the Nakba. Um, this is when all of the issues began. 
so so to create this piece she first stenciled out all the village names in english and then had other people that she asked embroider them um 100 140 volunteers from different countries including palestinians and israel uh, israelis sorry it takes me a second <laughs> to read it um 140 volunteers sewed the names of these villages they visited her studio um and not only did they embroider these names not only did they do that work but they had conversations they shared memories people argued there was singing and music and she learned a lot of people's lives and stories and also perspectives um this is i think one of her more well-known works i've seen this work several times and have had i've had it mentioned in class before um the title itself is really interesting because it is so blatant it literally says right there what it is there's no hiding it there's no kind of like ooh, what could this mean it is a full-on there is no interpretation this is a like it's a memorial to the 418 villages that have been embroidered um what i think is maybe the interpretation part or the conceptual part is the act itself of she stenciled the names and she brought these items together and had people, different people from different countries, including the two countries involved, um, take the needle and the thread and put it through. So each word or each village name rather is going to have something maybe slightly different. The thread's not all going to be the same. You know, it's not a machine, it's people's hands. So you're going to have that touch of human quality. Um, and you're going to have that experience along with it. And there is the conceptual. The artwork itself is very, very, very straightforward forward. The activism, the politics, whatever you want to say about it is very straightforward and does not allow any movement of or doesn't allow any um room rather for any wrong interpretation even with like the death of the artist if you will which is like a whole art theory thing i don't think that exists here i don't i really don't think there's interpretation though folks will try their hardest uh, and again the conceptual comes from the act of the embroidery the element of people who probably maybe aren't artists we don't know exactly who did these things, but it's that part of it that is the conceptual. I talked a lot about this. <laughs> um, and currently, this artwork is at the National Museum of Contemporary Art in Athens. So let's move on. So the next three um, pieces I'm going to be talking about, if you will, they're often usually combined. They are video works, video installations. Um, sometimes it looks like they were shown um, separately, but for the most part, they're kind of joined together. But I'm going to be talking about the three different parts, if you will. So the first one is Crossing Serta, which was created in 2003. Um, I believe all of these may have been created in 2003. I don't have the year for all of them. Um, anyway, th at least this one was created in 2003. So this one, um, Crossing Serta, a record of going to and from work, as the artist says, exists because an Israeli soldier threatened me and put an M16 into my temple. 
If I had not had this direct threatening experience, this piece would not exist. And essentially, in this video, she filmed her commute to and from work for eight days. And this includes passage through an Israeli checkpoint. And one day, she had her pastor thrown in the mud and had a gun held to her head. Um, so, yeah. Um, the second one is from Texas with love. Um, and in this film, she asked different Palestinian people what music they would choose to drive across their country. And so in this, she films um, through the car's front window. I don't know if there's a better term for that. I'm not a car person. I don't drive. But, you know, through the big wide front window and she films with like a wide lens creating like this big screen of like a big empty flat road, assumingly Texas, the big sky. And throughout the video, she added the different suggested songs, the, the answers that were given to her. And then the third video that I'm talking about is called Ramallah slash New York. And basically she films her experiences in both Ramallah and New York in same similar kind of buildings and um, shows like does a kind of compare and contrast. So she has like delis and hairdressers and bars um, in both cities. And she also shows people um, traveling from these two cities. Um, it's kind of about how she has homes in two different places, right? And it's really cool like to see just how sometimes you really can't tell uh, which is New York and which one's like in Palestine. Um, so it's really interesting there. And deeply, all of these are deeply personal, really. But I think it's a, they're all really interesting examples of how we can use film and documentary um, and music. Like, I guess that's a, an incorporation of sound art, maybe. I would say prob probably it is, but um, definitely different ways to show art and show our lived experiences and show how, especially in this case, how the occupation, violence, um, how that affects us or the artists and other people in different ways. Um, film and like video, like on social media, this was created early on um, before we kind of, we had YouTube before, especially before we had TikTok and Vine, you know, um, the way that video has been used since to document things, to show our lives and experiences, to change things, it's really incredible. So to have something, I mean, obviously there's a lot of video and film prior, but just comparing then to now. The next work that I'm going to be talking about is a little bit more difficult to explain, so bear with me. Um, it's called Material for a Film, Retracing While Zuader. Um, and this is an ongoing um, piece that started in 2005, and it is a mixed media installation work. And um, let me get a, give the background for it first. Um, so she, obviously it's about this man, well, Zuader, who was a Palestinian intellectual who was living in Rome when he was assassinated in 1972 by Israeli agents. Um, he was mistakenly identified as one of those responsible for the murder of Israeli athletes at the 1972 Olympics in Munich. 
um, this installation that she created puts together books, photographs, music, interviews, telegrams, copies of the Italian magazine. Um, oh, that's so hard to read. But basically, Revolution Palestine um, that Zuader had contributed to. Um, there's also a, a clip from a Pink Panther film that he had a um, part in. So basically, she combines both her identity as a Palestinian woman um, and kind of subs that also with this person um, as described um, by the national as um, to flesh out a life no longer there. Which is, wow. <laughs> it's, that's so sad. Um, sorry, I'm reading some of the critiques, which is like kind of, I, I try not to read art critique because sometimes it just really upsets me. Um, she was able to kind of put together all these different materials from his life and a kind of like outside his life because she talked to a variety of different people that were involved in his life, his friends and families. And this included a variety of different people like artists and journalists and poets, um, and some famous people, including Alberto Moravia, Moravia, um, and Bruno Cagli. Oh, I'm so, having such a hard time with these names. I'm so sorry. Jean Jeanette and Pierre Paolo, Paolo Pasolini. I think I was okay. Um, the assassination of him, even as a mistake, obviously, like it's deeper than just a mistake, right? Um, it was really tragic for those who knew him and for those in that community. Um, he, it was a lot of artists and poets and, and all. Um, there's always really, you know, the, when artists kind of like describe the loss of somebody really important to them who just had the whole world ahead of them, the way that they can put words together just makes it even more tragic. Um, I think if that makes sense. Um, it's kind of serves as like an exhibit on him, but also in a wider lens serves as an exhibit on the violence that Palestinian people face, no matter where they are, um, the ability to be targeted um, because of the kind of major presence that the Israeli military in particular has um, and how anybody, no matter their intentions, who they are in their life, what they do can face this extreme form of violence and possibly lose their life. And it's also the way that it's, it is a more also, I think like a memorial, the way that the, the items are placed together that definitely does trace this person's life and shows kind of what could have been and what was. Um, and it sounds incredibly tragic to, to just see this exhibit. And there's a really good article um, written by the artist herself, Jasir, called Material for a Film Retracing Will Zuader Part 1. And there's also a Part 2. And this was um, written in 2007, July 2007. So if you want some more of the artist's own perspective, her research, the work that she did, um, this would be a really cool thing to check out. There's also some videos like the Pink Panther film, um, that clip right there.
right, so next I'm going to be talking about another one of her very significant, well-known works. Um, and unfortunately, I think this work is so well-known for the wrong reasons because there's controversy around it So, and censorship. So this work is was created in 2009. It's called Stanzioni, and it was created for the 2009 Venice Finale for the Palestinian Pavilion. So Jasir created a site-specific public project, and the plan was that it would be the public would be involved and it would take place during the entire Benale, but the Venice city authorities completely shut it down and would not let it continue, would not let it happen. Um, let me read some quotes here from CBS. Um, and I think this one, that one's a different one. So let me read the one from CBS. Significant by its absence at the Venice Benale was Emily Jasir's contribution to the official offsite exhibition, Palestine Co. Earth. Yes. Yeah, Co. Venice. Jasir's work, Stazinone, that's hard for me to pronounce, I'm so sorry, would have seen all of the piers for the Route 1 water bus, the Vaporado that runs up and down the Grand Canal, display the stop location names in Arabic as well as the usual Italian. Mock-ups were made, the Benali approved, the council approved, and the Vaporado company that runs Route 1 approved. Then suddenly it didn't. Apparently the Vaporado company stopped the project and all the artists could find out secondhand was that they had received pressure from an outside source to shut it down for political reasons. Another quote, which comes from the website Art, oh god, this is harder for me. Um, Arter I Malaysia, A R T E R I M A L A Y S I A dot com. Emily Jasir Stazinone, 2008-2009, is an unrealized intervention on the number one Vaporado water bus line, a main transport route along the Grand Canal beginning at Lido, winding its way to Piazzale Roma, ferrying audiences from one Binale exhibition to another by inserting Arabic text supplementing the existing Italian names at uh, Vaporetti stops and thus making the route bilingual. In the artist's explanation, the work references the numerous era Arab influences and exchanges in the history of Venice, its architecture, manufacturing, shipping, and of course, in the process of these activities, language. That Arabic words, too, have filtered into the Venetian dialect. Divin, Damasco, Gabella, amongst others. So basically, and it's really not that controversial, really. It is like this water bus, like a little tiny ferry. Um, it's mostly white and then there's like some yellow and it says it in Italian and then it's an Arabic script and then, you know, it floats. That's it. It was just meant to highlight this kind of like do out, like you have, you've borrowed some stuff from Arabic culture. Like literally there are these windows, this photo of this building along the canal that are clearly from Arabic influence and they shut it down. And there wasn't even any, like, public danger or anything, like, you know, when I said the public was involved, because they're literally getting on the ferry. So, (laughs) there's this um, interesting article talking about it, or it's it's a blog, really, called we-make-money-not-art.com. We make money, not art. Um... This was posted in 2010, which was the year following. Um, People were just really, really confused. And this article really illustrates that. There wasn't any clear explanation as to why 
um, everybody was confused about it. So um, this person here, uh, Regine, did a little bit of research. So I'm going to read a little bit. Yet the Benali had, a had at first approved the project, and so did the council and the Vaporato company. And I know I'm not pronouncing that right, but you all know how I do with, like, Italian and French. Anyway, um, all the artists could find out secondhand. Okay, I read that um, before. Um, oh, okay, here it is. The company claimed that the problem was with the city authorities in Venice. Jasir, who had won a golden lion at the Venice Benale two years earlier, spoke to the Vaporato company in person, but she couldn't get any clear answers. Oddly, she told Art Monthly, the man I spoke with mentioned the attacks on Gaza last December and said that this played a role in shutting down the project as it made the parties involved in the project nervous. I find that completely bizarre as the work has nothing to do with Gaza. <laughs> basically she was kind of targeted for being Palestinian. Um, it just like, yeah, literally this article says to illustrate cultural exchanges through history. Um, and when I first read about this without actually seeing the artwork itself, um, I was like, what could have been like, were people involved sharing their opinions or something controversial? It literally is a tiny little fairy that people go on to. To go back and forth. And it's kind of like a dinghy. And sorry, my fiance is walking in. I want you to look at this. Me. What do you think about this? Is an artwork here? What do you think about this? So basically, there are these little fairies. This happened in Venice with the Venice Benali in 2009. And here it says it in Italian, the name of the boat. And then it says it in Arabic. And that's the artwork. It's just to highlight, you know, how Venice has borrowed some of Arabic culture and has been influenced, you know, as they, as we do see like these windows right here. Perfect example. Guess what happened to this artwork? Uh, it was vandalized. No, no, they wouldn't let it happen. Oh, do yeah. you understand why? People don't like Muslims very much. No. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it just boils down. So basically the only explanation that the artist got is that, um, there was an attack on Gaza and they were nervous. Did you mow the lawn yet? Yeah. Oh, okay. I can't hear. Um, yeah, so like, take a look, see what you think. It's absolutely ridiculous as to why they wouldn't let this happen. Um, what's also, because, you know, if we're really like thinking about things, so like the American pavilion is like neoclassical kind of stuff. Like, I don't know. It just, ugh, it just bothers me because there have been some stuff at Venice Finale that has been worse. Let's be honest. The final thing I'm going to be talking about is a photography installation. Um, it's called Where We Come From, and it existed for, or was created, installed, I don't know how to word it, but from 2001 to 2003. Um, this was um, also at the Benale. Oh, no, no, not, no. Was it in? No, it wasn't. That would have been early. I don't know numbers. Leave me alone. Okay. Anyway, ignore that. Um, so basically, she asked more than 30 Palestinians living both abroad um, and within Palestine. Um, she asked them the question, if I could do anything for you anywhere in Palestine, what would it be? And she got all these responses and she carried out the different tasks, um, which was like, she, because she has an American passport, she was able to travel between different territories and stuff, um, which of note, it, it, 
it is an extreme privilege in this area in Palestine. Um, and as I said with the video, you know, like her passport was thrown to the ground and stuff. So there is, you know, issues. And if you know anything about what's happening, like people have had their passports like destroyed and stuff and um, stuff like if your passport says you're Palestinian, you get discriminated against at the very least. Um, and people have been killed and stuff. So, um, so the, <laughs> the tasks that, um, were part of this installation included things, um, food, local foods, wanting to try foods or uh, eat those foods again, visiting graves, meeting relatives, visiting loved ones, paying bills, um, playing football, recreation. And with each task, she photographed it and then had like a description with it. So um, the description of the task um, exists in a black frame, like a really accessible, easy black frame. Um, and it's in both Arabic and English, the um, requests from that Palestinian person, um, their location, and the situation in regards to where they live. So like if they don't live in Palestine anymore, why, what happened, where, you know, um, and if they do live where they do live, like where they push out of their homes and stuff like that. And then finally, um, on the note is how she went about doing that task. And of course, next to that is the photograph, which is um, they had varying sizes. So some of them are very large and some of them are kind of like the same size as the other frame, which is kind of like standard, I would say it's kind of small frame. And they're just really beautiful. So if you look at them online, um, you can get both the text and then the photo. So we have, the photos aren't necessarily like artistic, rather it is a documentation though. There are artistic elements. So like one of them, um, is to play soccer with the first Palestinian, uh, go to Haifa and play soccer with the first Palestinian boy you see on the street. Um, I've never been there, unfortunately, but you will bet it will be the first place I go to if and when I get my American passport. If I do go to Israel and my passport shows that I've been there, it would limit my ability to visit my family in Lebanon, which is a must, which is a must at the moment. Sorry, the quality is a little hard to read. And it says a person's name, where they're living. They're living in Houston, Texas. Um, and there's a photograph, um, like, of a boy. They're playing soccer. Um, the next one, and that one was, like, a little bit bigger than the frame. Uh, the next one I have here, go to Jerusalem and light a candle on the grave of Christ in the Holy Sepulcher Church. And then go to, I'll, what is it? Sepulcher. Sepulcher. I can't say that. My mouth won't let me. Sepulcher. Sorry. Uh, then go to Al-Aqsa Mosque and pray to God. Wow, the quality of these images is not good. It's this website. And pray to God to ease the pressure and help those who are needy in both places. Um, I've been a denied entry into Palestine since 1991. Um, this has two images. One of um, the church and then the mosque trying to load up the other one this one go to i think it says libya and bring me a photo of my family especially my brother's kids oh sorry it makes me cry i've been studying in some sort of universe it won't even let me like how do i make it bigger because this is annoying me that i can't read them properly there we go oh here we are 
I've been studying at Brzezit University for the past three years, and I've not been allowed to go to Gaza and see my family. I have no permission to be in the West Bank as a Gazian, I think it says. So I am confined to Birzit until I finish my studies. And there are four small photos here um, of family members. Somebody's picking tomatoes, a child running. This one is different. It's not a photograph. Um, Go to Haifa's beach at the moment of first light, take a deep breath, and light a candle in honor of all those who gave their lives for Palestine. I've been applying for a visa since 1995, but I'm always denied. Um, born in Cairo, living in Riyadh, Jordan, Jordanian passport. Father and mother from Jerusalem, both exiled in 1948. And this one next to it is um, a video on like an old, well, for then it would have been not old, TV um with the first light and the candle burning sign a condolence book for Faisal al-Husseini who is my hero and idol the reason my brother and I have never been to Palestine is because of the difficulties in obtaining a visa visa born in Kuwait city living in Montreal Canada a father from Jaffa mother from Jerusalem both exiled in 1948 and here um is a photograph of them writing in this book um, let's do one more. Oh, okay. This one makes me really Drink the water in my parents' village. I've never been to Palestine because I have, I have a Syrian refugee passport and I am forbidden entry. Born in Kuwait City, living in San Jose, California. Syrian refugee document. Father from Al... Oh, I can't read that. Al... Mujidal. Mother from rain both exiled in 1948 sorry it's like still really small i hit it i'm sorry it's still really really small even though i literally zoomed in should we do one more oh there was a photo of like like as if you were sipping the water like the camera was placed there okay here's one i'm going to end on go to gaza and eat sayadie sayadie um, I think I'm pronouncing that. I'm going to look that up really quick so that I can pronounce it more correctly since I've been like messing up all, so many words. Saya D. Okay. How do I pronounce you? It looks yummy. It is a seasoned fish and rice dish from Lebanese cuisine made with cumin and other spices. Spice mix is called Barah. Ba in Arabic and his preparation varies from cook to cook but many include caraway, caraway cinnamon, cumin, and coriander. I can say that. Alright, let's look at the pronunciation. Sorry, we're just taking a brief intermission here because I just want to try and say it better. Sadia. Sadia. Sat. Hmm. Sadia. 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 Okay. All right. I'm, okay. Anyway, so <laughs> the photo here is this very long plate. Obviously, would have been a dish for a fish, um, surrounded by other small plates. There is no food really left. It's just kind of like the bits and pieces. So we do have some, I think, lemons or oranges, um, kind of like for decoration that are left around the plates. Um, you can see people have been eating this and having a good time. And one of the reasons why I was so interested in talking about this is because of the food images that came up um and if you know anything about me the culture around food the comfort around food the history around food how it relates to art and culture and just comfort 
like all of that mixed together i'm really fascinated with so the fact that like she asked these people like hey what can i do for you and the things that people said was like i want to play soccer with somebody that i can relate to i want to see my family I want to relate to my family and their land and their heritage. I want to eat this food that is comforting me. And I want it to be from like a good place. Like I, all these things that all are just human and comfort. There's a lot of food and um, like consumption of that. And it just shows really how important cultural food is, how just interesting that how food is. I want to see is there more food i know i said it was the last one okay let's we'll, we'll end on this one um because this one's really interesting i think this one is go to the israeli post office in jerusalem and pay my phone bill i live in area c which is under full israeli control so my phone service is israeli in order to pay my phone bill i must go to an israeli post office which does not exist in my area c i'm forbidden from going to jerusalem so i'm always looking for someone to go and pay my phone bill um he was born in a refugee camp, um, and he has a Palestinian passport with a West Bank ID, so that definitely prevents him. And his parents were also exiled in 1948. And the photo is her in line. Oh, I'm I'm just going to read the ones that have been provided to me. Um, in this, like, because this was exhibited in their space. Um, visit my mother, hug and kiss her, and tell her that these are from her son. Visit the sea at sunset and smell it for me and walk a little bit enough. Am I greedy? Um, I have a Gaza idea, so I should be in Gaza. I left Gaza from, I can't read that, in 1995 and cannot go back. I also cannot move to any place in the West Bank because of the Israeli restrictions. The Israelis refuse to give me a West Bank idea because as they claim for security reasons. Um, and the photo is um, her kissing his mother on the cheek and embracing her. Um, that's the one I'm going to end with because I don't know if I... That one. This really makes... That, I think that all of these are wonderful examples, of course. Um, and the, the conceptual, I think, I've only brought up a couple times as a conceptual artist, is... She's simply just trying to show you that Palestinian people are people and they're human beings and they just want to live um, and experience their life and have a good life. And they are often robbed of those good little moments. And it's not just the, um, the violence that we know, the murders, um, the bombs, the forceful, like get out of your homes, um, the arrests, it's also, and the threats, it's also like forms of cultural genocide that really kind of put the salt in the wound, not being able to see your family, not having movement, which is a thing that a lot of refugees, you know, they have this problem with movement. They can't move around, um, which creates issues internally and externally. Um, not being able to get like certain foods or they're just not the same um just stuff like that and i i think this is a wonderful exhibit that should be occurring right now if it isn't um and i would be interested to see um contemporary 
versions of this. Um, this was again in 2001 to 2003, and obviously things have continued to change. And I wonder how they would be in comparison and how different they would be. Um, because we have different technology and stuff, and you know, so many things obviously with elections and United States inf- influence, and, and our elections, of course, have major influence on the area and what happens there and then with the pandemic and everything like what would these tasks be what would be the differences in movement um what would be the differences in like passports and being able to do that like what would be the same what would be the difference and how would food be involved how would technology be involved i think that would be really interesting to see um And I would love to know exactly what she's thinking about and doing right now in regards to everything that's happened, like, in the last couple of years, especially. Okay, so that was some select works from the artist Emily Jassir. Um, She has a lot of work, a lot of exhibitions, so I would suggest checking them out. Um, There's definitely photos and videos online. You can't necessarily see everything because, you know, it depends who kind of owns it. Um, But... If you're really interested in continue checking out her work, I would love to um, see one of her exhibits in real life um, because they're amazing and I love conceptual art and conceptual installations are like my favorite thing. Um, and I really am a fan of how she utilizes photo and film and that kind of like, um, especially as photo and film has changed in like the early 2000s to mid 2000s, how different that is from, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, And I like the way that she uses very common themes and objects. Um, Not necessarily a refugee tent isn't necessarily like super common, but we can like see that object and kind of feel it a little bit more and understand a little bit more if that makes sense um but I like how she kind of forces you to relate to somebody um by using these very very simple things like the tasks um the people embroidering kind of like the community or meeting together and working on things together um and the boats with people using them to travel which I just thought as a double thing is these boats take you to and from the different pavilions, right? I would say there is, even though it, I don't think it was intentional, but maybe um, the movement of refugees, especially within Palestine, Israel, Gaza, the West bank there, especially like when I was talking about the different tasks and the photos there, people were talking about, they couldn't get passports. They couldn't move from the certain place. They couldn't do things until they finished studying or they couldn't get permission and they couldn't get visas and all this stuff. Um, and I think it's really interesting, even though this was not specifically about Gaza, like she literally said, um, movement as a Palestinian artist, um, and the ability to go to and from is a common thing that kind of pops up in the work because that's a common thing that happens. Um, and I just think that's a, an interesting further element that I don't think was a nest, like really a, like a like intention because it was more about um, the borrowing and sharing of ideas and influence and appropriation, but also like kind of honoring historical contributions and all that kind of stuff. She was really just kind of doing that. But I think that having like a vehicle is really interesting. Like 
going to and from. Anyway, I need to end this because I'm just rambling because I like to talk about art. I hope that you learned something new today and I hope that you check this artist further. Um, I hope that um, this was good and that the audio is good. Of course, send me your feedback. Do we like this? Do we not like this? And um, you'll hear from me next week. Um, I have a couple of episodes in mind. I just have to decide which one I'm going to do. So, all right. Um, this has been For Art's Sake and Art History and Museum Podcast. I've been your host, Rhea. Goodbye. Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of For Art's Sake and Art History and Museum Podcast. I'm your host, Rhea. So I actually don't have a lot to talk about. Um, simply just, um, I'm tired. And I kind of just want to talk about today's episode. Um, but before that, um, I have the fan on in the background. It's warm, it's hot, we're getting the summer, and I hate it. You're going to hear me complain about that, so that's fun. Um, and also, it is Pride Month, so happy Pride Month, everyone. Um you know, the best thing that you can do is give some money to black and brown trans folks um, if you're able to. Um, I'm going to have some pride-related content this month, um, but I need to refocus or, like, look at my list of ideas and try to find stuff that isn't 100, like, like aggravating and horrible and sad, um, which is unfortunately a lot of um, queer history within art. But, um, yes, there's going to be pride content and it's not all going to be sad and it's going to be fun. We're going to learn some stuff. Um, but today we're going to be talking about a museum. We're just going to kind of keep it simple, talk about the history, what's going on. So today, as you can tell by the title, we are talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I'm going to mostly be talking about the museum rather than like kind of a, like the Hall of Fame concept. But we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um... I've never been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, unfortunately. Um, I do want to go. My father visited several years ago, which was really neat. Um, but I don't... See, I wanted to go when they had the Warped Tour exhibit, and I don't think it's there anymore. I have to double check um, for 2021. So, But he when he went, it wasn't there. So, wow. Anyway, let's get started. So the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame... Um, started as a foundation. The Rock and, Roll Hall uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation was started in 1983 by founder and chairman of Atlantic Records, Ahmet Erdogan. Um, and the foundation was initially started with a committee of several kind of well-known folks in the music industry um, that included Rolling Stone publisher Jan S. Wenner, as well as some record executives, um, Seymour Stein, and also some lawyers. And when it began, it began just as like kind of inducting people into a Hall of Fame, but it, not an actual building. Um, it was, I guess it was kind of like just the idea and I guess like certifications, right? Um, when they began to initially induct people into the Hall of Fame, that was 1986. And it took until 1993 for them to actually find a physical home um, and to begin construction. But during that decade, um, the committee there, not only were they inducting artists, um, but they were considering a physical home for the Hall of Fame. And they considered several different cities. Um, and each city had kind of like history 
you know, musical history, which most places kind of do, but these, you know, they kind of were considering these cities for certain reasons. And this included like Memphis and Detroit and Philadelphia, but they were all in New York city. And they were also considering Cleveland. Well, Cleveland itself was lobbying for the museum to be built there. Um, they, civic leaders pledged $65 million in public money to fund the construction. Um, they, one of the reasons why they were like, Hey, definitely come here is that, um, the term rock and roll was coined by a disc jockey, Alan Freed in Cleveland. Um, and that the whole concept of rock and roll, the whole genre was created and promoted within the city. Um, they also had some other reasons. I think that's one's kind of like the cutest one. Um, they had famous radio stations, which played um, a highly influential role in making several highly influential and famous artists famous, like David Bowie. Um, there have been a lot of famous concerts and tours that have gone through the area, as well as concert venues. And quite a lot of different genres of music have sprouted from the Cleveland area. Um, one of the things about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the physical location, um, which by the way is a bit like a triangle shape, um, it used to be the host area of the APMAs, which are the Alternative Press Music Awards. Um, and the reason for that is because Alternative Press sprung out of Cleveland. And there was quite a lot of bands that already come from Ohio. Ohio is a huge state, but Cleveland itself has had a rich alternative history. Um, there's just a lot of music that comes from that area, surrounding area, and the state. So a variety of different media companies and businesses and famous folks um, organized this petition um, to show support for the museum. It was signed by 600,000 um, Ohio residents of that area, the Northeast area of Ohio, where Cleveland ranks. Um, it was in a U 1986 United States, or sorry, USA Today poll um, where, where it asked um, where the Hall of Fame should be located. Um, and then finally, <laughs> on May 5th, 1986, the Hall of Fame Foundation announced that they chose Cleveland as a permanent home for the museum. Um, there have been debates and criticism um, from different people within the industry about placing it in Cleveland, um, about how the reason why they took it is because of $65 million and other people um, couldn't compete. It was just like the best financial option. Um, but it's, I, I guess it would be hard because there's so many musical cities. A lot of people have argued that it should be in Memphis. You know, there's, there's been, I guess, some controversy. And of course, further on from that, they had to decide exactly where in Cleveland to build it. Build it, I mean. Um, so there was quite a lot of debate about where to put it. Like if it should be near the Cleveland Stadium, if it should be against the water. Um, there were some like giant vacant areas and buildings that they... Um, wanted to place the museum and finally they decided where they were going to put it and then they had to decide who was going to design it and of course they had i am pay who is a incredibly famous and highly influential architect um i think it's one of the more well-known uh, modern architects um and you can definitely tell by the style of the building that he designed it because it is this like kind of abstract building that is really gorgeous and lets the light in he's a um it's a giant triangle and then towards the back of the building you have kind of like 
these other kind of abstracted areas um, reminds me of the National Aquarium quite a lot. 